From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later on the show, this Sunday is Oscar night in America. And as usual, we have a lot of complaints about the nominations. So does John Powers. He's critic at large on the NPR show Fresh Air with Terry Gross. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first, Ron DeSantis has written a book and Chris Lehman has read it. That's coming up in a minute. It's time to talk about The Courage to Be Free. That's the title of the autobiography of Ron DeSantis published this month. Our Chris Lehman actually read the book. He's the nation's DC editor, formerly editor of The Baffler and The New Republic, and the author most recently of the book, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. We reached him today in Washington. Chris, welcome back. Thank you, John. A pleasure to be here as always. Well, thank you for reading the Ron DeSantis book. That that must have been hard work. You're welcome. It was with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know much about his life until I read your review. I understand he went to Yale undergrad and then Harvard Law. Uh, just for starters, how does he deal with that in a book where he claims anti-elite populist credentials? Well, you know, it's a familiar uh, trope by now on the right, of course. He really desperately tries to gin up this kind of fish out of water account. He does come from a blue collar background in Florida. His uh, dad was a Nielsen box installer back when they watched broadcast TV and they moved around a lot in Florida. But it is interesting, you know, uh, in order to claim the kind of heroic working person lineage. He actually goes back to his grandparents' generation. <laughs> uh, they met in Ohio. So he's kind of like saying, oh, you know, my family one generation back was almost where J.D. Vance was. <laughs> wow. And he does say in these kind of glib declarative sentences that having this connection to Northeastern Ohio made him patriotic and Christian. And, you know, it's just this kind of weird blood and soil vision of, yeah. of how people acquire their worldviews. You quote a great line of his... He writes about Yale and Harvard, quote, where entitled and tenured professors reigned as potentates. As a history professor myself, this had special meaning to me. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I bow down to you, John. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand that while he was a Yale student, he got a kind of working class job where he felt oppressed. And my question is, who was oppressing him? Was it the bosses, the capitalists, the, the oh, ruling no. class? Oh, you have to get with the program here, John. This is right-wing populist class analysis 101 here. Is <laughs> okay. Your oppressor is always and forever the federal government. So he got a job as a part-time electrical contractor, and uh, the job he was going out on you know, required a different set of boots to meet OSHA standards. So he had to, you know, spring for a, a new pair of boots. And that was sort of one of the many kind of little set pieces along the way that blossoms as his career um, takes off into, uh, you know, this kind of full-throated resentment of anything having to do with Washington and uh, regulation. And um, it's always and forever the case that individual enterprise is being fiercely repressed by 
elite bureaucrats. I mean, they, this is the thing. If you don't have a class analysis as to what makes an elite, that is to say that they occupy some position of ownership or material interest um, in the existing state of things, you can just designate anyone you dislike as an elite. <laughs> yeah. Back when I was at the Baffler, we tried to make this point way back in the 90s when um, earlier generation of the culture wars was taken off. And, you know, I, I called it elitism without elites. <laughs> because, uh, Great. Uh, DeSantis's book is sort of a unrelenting case study in that that mindset. He he has this uh, refrain that America has a ruling class, which seems kind of like a Marxist idea. But the ruling mm. class in America, in his view, is left wing. That's the part I'm not so sure about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You didn't know that we were the ruling class. I want to look at what he did with his Harvard law degree, because yes. he makes a big point of this in the book. He didn't go to work for a white shoe law firm. He went into the Navy and practiced law, military law. And where did he do this? Uh, he did it in uh, Guantanamo uh, initially, where, uh, you know, the notorious detention facilities for uh, non-combatants in uh, the war on terror, where uh, people were horribly abused and never really brought up before uh, courts of justice because they weren't really charged with anything. Speaking of the baffler, there's there's a great piece in the latest issue uh, talking about DeSantis's military career and interviews one of the detainees who was in uh, Guantanamo during his tenure there. And this was a time when they were hunger striking to protest their conditions. And uh, DeSantis was trying to get them to be fed against their will, which uh, is widely recognized um, by human rights groups as a form of torture itself. One of the people being force-fed in Guantanamo describes DeSantis looking on and laughing. And yeah, as he uh, his political career took off, former detainees in internet chats and, and whatnot described him as among the worst overseers in, in that glorified torture. And there's a, another part I didn't really understand in your review. You quote him saying, America's ruling class enthusiastically embraces the Great Reset, which yeah. he explains forecasts a future in which you will, quote, own nothing and be happy, close quote. Now, I hadn't heard about owning nothing and being happy. Well, again, you got to <laughs> catch up on your internet conspiracy theories. So um, what is the, the Great Reset? <laughs> I actually did look this up. It comes actually from Davos and a book by a German professor named Klaus Schwab, which is about creating a sustainable economy as a response to the climate crisis. And the term, the words Great Reset, have received more than 8 million interactions on Facebook and been shared more than 2 million times on Twitter. So I have missed something big here. What's the deal with the Great Reset? Something that economists commonly do is try to project future trends with different variables in place and climate change being the kind of existential crisis it is, this thinker said, you know, you may have to own own less stuff, kind of like what Jimmy Carter did in his famous cardigan sweater speech about uh, conserving energy. Um, and that also predictably created all kinds of outrage among, you know, sort of purist libertarian capitalists on the right. Uh, and you remember like the drill baby drill chant of the 2004, I guess, Republican convention, there's always this kind of 
uproar when there's any suggestion that natural resources can't be exploited to the hilt on the right. And it's not hard to understand why. These are the companies that fund right-wing politics. Look at the Koch brothers. So, so yeah, the Great Reset, I think, falls into that school of political demonology on the right. And it is worrying that a figure like Santos, who is governor of a state and is going to announce, everyone agrees, his presidential candidacy soon, is just leaping headlong into this kind of conspiratorial fever swamp of the right. You know, this is where the action is in uh, the Republican primary system, right? There's a whole host of uh, conspiracy-minded white nationalist voters who are going to be pandered to. And DeSantis has spent, you know, much of his term in office doing just that. This week's news about Ron DeSantis, uh, (laughs) front page uh, story the New York Times is about the changes he has proposed to the Florida law on defamation lawsuits under the bill that is currently being considered in the Florida legislature, a public figure would no longer need to show actual malice to win a defamation case. So if a person is publicly known for being elected governor or president and a news organization publishes an investigation about that person's private life or business life before he was elected or even during while he's elected, that report would not get the special protection provided by the Supreme Court's 1964 decision in New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, This new defamation rule would also apply under the Florida bill he's proposed to any single utterance on the internet, any single tweet, any single Facebook post could, or any one presentation to an audience, which could mean a statement at a city council or school board meeting. Part of this, at least, is going to pass the Florida legislature. I wonder, just for example, if your piece about him at thenation.com could be the target of a defamation lawsuit. I know. I I could be heading to Florida's version of Guantanamo myself (laughs) at some point, I suppose. The key thing in in the law is this distinction between criticizing a person's actions as an elected official and their actions separately from that. So we've talked about what he did at Guantanamo. He wasn't elected then. So conceivably, that could be the basis of a defamation lawsuit of him against you and even against this podcast. Yes, it's true. Uh, well, fortunately, I'm married to a very good attorney. So, I'm, I'm <laughs> Could you give me your number, please? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the gaping paradox in this school of right-wing, you know, persecution, cultural persecution theology. <laughs> good. They're always, you know, bemoaning cancel culture and you can't say things and, you know, we need to revive the First Amendment. And then they turn around and do stuff like this, that, which is using actual state power to suppress speech. This is exactly what the First Amendment very clearly rules out. And, you know, there are still even greater orders of paradox. You wonder, like, Fox News is facing an actual defamation case where there is, I think, evidence of actual malice and reckless disregard for the truth. So does that mean Ron DeSantis supports Dominion voting systems? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, whoa. Uh, well, you know, he does have an answer to this yeah. objection of yours, which is the left made me do it. Exactly. That is always the lament you hear. And it goes, again, way back in uh, modern conservatism. 
it's a rhetorical move that allows uh, the speaker to claim the reasonable center. And DeSantis says this again and again in his book, I'm just proposing common sense measures. I want to protect parents' rights in all these uh, school conflicts. I want to protect women athletes from trans competition. I'm, it all does sound reasonable on the page, which is why I think Ron DeSantis is ultimately very dangerous. His messaging, even though it has all these, you know, first order contradictions we're talking about, it is far more disciplined than Donald Trump's, who's going to, you know, at any moment at a rally, go off on a riff on how much he hates Bette Midler or something. (laughs) Uh, Ron DeSantis is focused on like four basic agenda items, and he just hammers away at them relentlessly. And he has successfully used state power in Florida to enact this agenda. Um, And as you mentioned, it's getting increasingly authoritarian and it's getting through the state legislature. You know, they're basically a rubber stamp for what's going to be DeSantis's 2024 presidential platform. As a contribution to the Republican primaries, Ron DeSantis's supporters have been concerned that he needs to what they call humanize himself for a national audience. I wonder if if this book is succeeding at that. It didn't work for me, I can tell you that. (laughs) Um, It's always just the same lesson over and over again. You know, Ron DeSantis, the kind of heroic working class avatar of common sense, is besieged, you know, by all of these somehow all of these hideous alien forces have wormed their way into the most influential positions of power in the country. And he is heroically fighting back for all of us to reclaim them. Meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump spoke at CPAC over the weekend, and he said things like, I am your retribution, and this (laughs) is the final battle. How does that stack up against uh, DeSantis? It's kind of classic Trump. And as I mentioned the last time we talked, when we were talking about the QAnon phenomenon, Trump is very, you know, squarely embracing that kind of rhetoric of apocalyptic political confrontation, and he is going to be the redeemer figure. There is just going to be this kind of race to the bottom uh, in the Republican primaries to, as I was saying earlier, to see who can pander to a white nationalist base that wants to continue to be told these set pieces and and this kind of tailor-made political folklore that it's all about you and you are being uh, attacked on all sides by these hostile forces, immigrants and non-white Americans and trans Americans and gay Americans, and they are all coming for your birthright. Trump has been positioning himself for that, and, and DeSantis is as well. I think what's interesting is talking to people who study the rights and who are sort of never Trump Republicans who are, you know, went to CPAC. What the key issue right now differentiating Trump and DeSantis is vaccines and the COVID lockdown. Even though, you know, Biden essentially is declaring the COVID emergency over and there is no mask requirement anywhere, there's still all this pent up rage around Around Dr. Fauci. Oh, Dr. Fauci, yes. And uh, in his book, DeSantis decries the biomedical security state. A new one on me. Um, So I think you're going to see a lot of energy around this distinction because obviously 
Trump has urged people to be vaccinated and, you know, the vaccine was developed under Project Warp Speed in the Trump administration. He claims it as a, a as an achievement. So, and rightly so. Absolutely. So that will be, I think, something to watch as we see these kind of two formations of demented pseudo-populist politics go after each other. For demented pseudo-populist politics, we turn to Chris Lehman. He wrote about Ron DeSantis's campaign autobiography, The Courage to Be Free, for TheNation.com. Chris, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. This Sunday is Oscar night in America. And as usual, we have a lot of complaints about the nominees. For that, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on the NPR show Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has an audience of something like 5 million people. He worked for 25 years as a critic and columnist, first for the LA Weekly, then Vogue. And his work has also appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and The Nation. John, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, there's lots to complain about. I'd like to start by complaining about the nominees for Best Picture. My biggest complaint, I think, is about The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's story of how he started making movies as a kid. You can tell from the very first scene, the family is going to see the 1953 film, The Greatest Show on Earth, that this is not going to be a good movie. Or am I being too harsh? No, no, it's not a good movie. I mean, I mean, by the time I caught up with it, because I got to it a little late, I had, I had known that there were these great reviews for it. And I thought almost every single scene in the film was untrue. You know, <laughs> and it, it was, in a way that I was surprised by, much more of a vanity production than I expected to be, because the film is unremittingly dull. And the only reason why it would be, some of the scenes would be considered to be of interest is that at the end, they produce the genius who made this film. Yes. <laughs> and so, and so it's one of the ironies that in telling the story of how he became the genius who made the film, he made, I think, one of his very worst films. <laughs> Great. Because he had told the story, essentially some version of his psychological family life in things like E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and lots of other things. And because they were sublimated, Rather than direct, they have much more emotional power. Whereas the Fablemans, you just like Eva Diva. You know what is he doing? Some of the phoniest anti-Semitism I've ever seen in a movie. If you lived through it, how could you do such a fake version of it? <laughs> I think it's a bad movie. I don't think it's just like shouldn't be the best picture nominee. I, I would have given it a bad review. Well, my second complaint about the Best Picture nominations is The Banshees of Inishirin. This is the story about the tiny island in Ireland in 1923. And spoiler alert, a man who cuts off his own fingers because he's mad at his best friend. What the heck? What is this about? I think this film works only as an allegory of Ireland in the 20th century, the self-destructive violence between Catholics and Protestants. But I don't think cutting off your own fingers is really the right metaphor for the IRA's fight against the Brits. I mean, they did win an independent nation in 1921, and they made peace with Northern Ireland in 2006. Or, or am I being too harsh about this movie? I don't think you are. It's a, a quaint little movie with 
some violent pretensions, you know, and filled with, filled with every Irish cliche that you, you could ever want. <clears throat> the argument that's always made for him is that he's self-consciously deploying Irish cliches. It's so that when the animals come into the house, he doesn't really think Ireland's that way. It's the mythic Ireland. What I think the film's about that only makes sense to me is that it's about being an artist in Ireland because the guy who cuts off his finger, you know, you know it plays music and the other guy is a relentlessly dull, boring person. And like there's the whole tradition in Ireland, you know, starting with Joyce and all the rest, of the sense that you have to almost maim yourself to, to be an artist yes. you, you know, when you're surrounded, surrounded by this. Nevertheless, I'm flabbergasted people think it's so, you know, that it's good enough to be that. I do want to stop complaining for a minute to talk about the best international film nominees, especially the Polish entry, EO, made by Jerzy Skolomowski. Manola Dargis, film critic for the New York Times, says EO is not just the best foreign film, yeah. the best of all films, period. Yeah. The film already won the jury prize at Cannes. You are a Skolomowski guy. Who is he and who is EO? Solomowski is a Polish guy who was a contemporary of Roman Polanski's. He grew up as a child during during the war. His father was killed as part of the Polish resistance. His mother was one of was one of the Poles who actually did house Jewish people, and so he, he came from a kind of cussed, feisty family. You know, he began making these movies in the 1960s. Then they're, they're ex exceedingly good. Then got chased out of Poland for making over, overly political films and wound up in the West where he made some that maybe people might have seen. His most famous one maybe in America is called Moonlight, Moonlighting with Jeremy Irons, which is a wonderful little movie, chance to see it. He made a, a teen movie called Deep End, which I think is maybe the greatest teen movie of all times. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a brilliant, I mean, so I think it's a brilliant work of art. I, I think one of the great movies. Um, and then he kind of disappeared for a while he, as he got older and older. He, and then about when he was about 70, he kind of reemerged and began making these interesting movies. The new one, EO, is basically you just follow a donkey who is cut loose from a circus and you just watch him wander around experiencing the world from a, more from a donkey's point of view and just looking at the world through the big eyes of a donkey that <laughs> doesn't really judge anything but makes you think it's judging things because the eyes are so big, so we're doing the judgment. What's remarkable about the movie is that it gives, I guess, the animal more integrity as a living creature whose story is of value than almost any film I've ever seen. There's an earlier version by you know, Robert Bresson called Ozar Baltazar, which is a similar story, and clearly Skolomowski's riffing on that. It felt when I was watching, like I was watching a young punk's amazing tour de force film about a donkey. You know, some 25-year-old who thought, Brisson's great, but I'm as great as that. I'm going to make my own donkey movie, and I'm going to show you what it's like to be a donkey, and I'm going to use color filters, and I'm going to have amazing music, and it's just going to wander around, and you're going to gradually get a picture of what, of what the culture is like in Europe that you're seeing, and it's going to lead to a bad end, because every story about a donkey, I think, always leads to a bad end. Certainly the Bresson film leads to a bad end, and almost every film about animals leads to a bad end. Even Old Yeller. Even <laughs> oh, oh, man.
And we need to say a few words about the nominations for documentaries. The favorite seems to be Laura Poitras's film about the art world activism of Nan Golden, who went after the Sackler family, whose company sold OxyContin, to get their name taken off of the various galleries that museums have put up in uh, with their money. The film is called All the Beauty and yeah. All the Bloodshed. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of Laura Poitras's latest? Well, I liked it less well than most people did. It's wedding together two strands, the, the, the Nan Golden fighting against OxyContin, you know, and, and trying to get the Sackler name off museums. And then also the story of her career. The story of her career is an interesting career. I mean, and, you know, you know she's, she's a great photographer. And in fact, the story of the OxyContin is great. What's interesting is that I don't think it meshes together as well as people seem to think. Almost everyone I've talked to says the most touching part of the film has to do with the HIV and, and the whole AIDS crisis that she lived through with all her friends. And the OxyContin, even though that's the, supposedly the center of the film and has ravished millions and millions of lives of people who aren't artists, who live in small town Kentucky, that part isn't felt in the same way. It's not that it's a terrible film at all. It's just I think it's somehow being overpraised because you're piggybacking both on the fame of Nan Golden and at the same time, people who like it get to feel good about themselves because they feel like they too are fighting against the Sacklers. And this is, it's not a bad film, but I do think there are better films. Well, let me mention one. My favorite nominee for Best Documentary is All That Breathes. That's the one about two brothers in the slums of Delhi who rescue injured birds. It's an amazing movie. It is a, a genuinely amazing movie that fills you with both hope and despair at the same yeah. time. The despair is that so many birds are falling from the sky in, in Delhi and elsewhere, partly because of just the poisonous atmosphere. And the Delhi you see is not a, not a lovely, beautiful place, but it is a place filled with animal life. And here you have these guys who, from their youth, their dedication is to saving and looking after creatures because they breathe. So it's all that breathes, in, and, and that means you should be looking after and tending to and caring for the world. And these brothers spend years and years and years going out every day and doing this with, with no great compensation except the, the moral satisfaction of doing it and their love of the birds. And what I like about it, as, as distinct from, say, the Nan Golden film is that you actually had to go out into the world and meet people who weren't famous and then make them interesting. And in fact, they do that. And, and, and the story of the brothers, the gradual division that emerges between the brothers is itself interesting. So it's, it's interesting at every level, incredibly well shot. And the kites, because it's a particular kind of, you know, the, the birds are just majestic creatures. You know, and so you see them in their majesty and their pain. The and kite, let me just say, the kite is a kind of hawk kind that of hawk. is very, of which there are thousands and thousands in mm -hmm. Delhi because they feed on the on the garbage dumps. On the garbage, you know, and the rats and all this. And it's an, a beautiful, wonderful movie. Well, now it's time to talk about the blacklist and the Oscars. Well, I can hear your mouth watering already, John. <laughs> This year is the 75th anniversary of the Hollywood Blacklist, a key chapter in the history of the Oscars, and a key chapter in a wonderful new book about the history of the Oscars called Oscar Wars by Michael Shulman. Blacklisted people were banned not only from making movies, but from, from being nominated in the Oscar competition. In case some of our listeners don't quite remember how this all worked, 
The House Un-American Activities Committee claimed it needed to uncover communist infiltration in the film industry at the end of the 40s and into the 50s. They held hearings where they asked people the most famous question of the 50s, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And then they asked a second question. They required everyone to name the names of people they knew who were members of the Communist Party. If you refused to answer the first, you were blacklisted. If you said you'd talk about your own politics, but you weren't going to rat on your friends, you'd still be blacklisted. And if you said the First Amendment, protection of freedom of speech, meant the committee's questions were unconstitutional, if you did that, you'd go to prison for the crime of contempt of Congress, and 10 people did. Of course, there was a Communist Party in Hollywood, and they did write and direct uh, uh, movies and act in movies. My favorite example is the World War II film Tender Comrades, mm -hmm. about four women working in a defense plant and sharing a small house. And the star Ginger Rogers says, quote, share and share alike, that's democracy, close quote. This line was written by Dalton Trumbo, directed in a movie by Edward Dimitrik. Both of these people were Reds. Yeah. And that line was cited as an example of how the communists have infiltrated uh, Hollywood films. But even, here's the key, even after the blacklist went in, into effect, some blacklisted writers kept working using pseudonyms or fronts. And because they were talented people, some of the movies they wrote under other people's names were nominated for and won Oscars in 1956. This came to a head when The Brave One won the Oscar for Best Story, and the writer named was Robert Rich, somebody nobody had ever heard of, and he didn't show up to pick up his Oscar. What's the story of the 1956 Oscar for Best Story? To start with, the film was written by Dalton Trumbo, I think perhaps you know the most prolific of all the Black Mr. Writers, an impressive screenwriter with a long history who did lots and lots of famous movies. As you say, these people were talented, you know, and they made movies that people, they wrote movies that people liked, you know, and also a lot of people, I think along the way, knew the Blacklist was BS. And so therefore would, would, would kind of try to do workarounds as long as they didn't get in trouble themselves. In this case, Trumbo wrote the thing about a boy and a bull. It's not a good movie. But at the time, you know, they had to, they had to put a, na a name on the credit, and they put the name Robert Rich, who is the nephew of the King brothers, who are the producers of, of, of the film. The problem was once it was announced, everybody had to know who Robert Rich was. Then the nephew had to come out and say, no, it, it, it wasn't me. I just, I, I, I think I just work in the office there. It was one of those breakthrough cases that you came along the way Trumbo's analysis of how, of how to do stuff is to win these Oscars under pseudonyms and then have the question raised, who is, who is the person actually? Because then the absurdity of the fact that they're still working and in fact, people think they're good and what they're doing is not harmful to the country. You like their films, America likes their films and nobody can see any communist threat to it. You know, it was his his plan, and eventually it worked. At some point, there were just so many blacklisted writers who were winning awards that, in fact, they got embarrassed. Really, the first time this came up was when High Noon 
was uh, nominated. That was 1953. And now we think of High Noon, or many of us think of High Noon, as an allegory about the blacklist. Yes. Nobody in town will stand up to the bad guys who've just yes. arrived, except the lonely hero, Gary Cooper. This was written by Carl Foreman, blacklisted writer, and it was nominated for seven Academy Awards. And the weird thing was that it starred Gary Cooper, who had been a friendly witness for the committee, yeah. who was all in favor of forcing people to name names. He won for Best Actor, but the winner for Best Picture in 1953 was The Greatest Show on Earth, Small World, the film that inspired Steven Spielberg that opens uh, The Fablemans. A lot of people thought of think of High Noon as kind of a, a historic, important film in Hollywood. What do you think of High Noon? I think it's not a very good film. I think it's kind of thudding and obvious. And what's interesting is the way, the way that it's not interesting, I guess, or and not and not political, is that Gary Cooper, who was a reactionary, I think Gary Cooper thought this is a this is a great script for me. Yeah, he was right. It won him the Oscar. It, be, it became a recognized classic, though I think it's it's dull. But some of the ways that it's dull and, and kind of obvious are the things that make it as appealing to a right winger as it would to a, to a left winger. You know, I'm like, oh. who's not for the person who's going to stand up for justice and right in the face of the fact that, that no one else will do it, but you're doing the right thing and doing the brave heroic. That doesn't sound especially like a communist thing. You know, if you're Gary Cooper, you think, no, this is rugged individualism. What's interesting is the way that the, the complexity is because Foreman was blacklisted, High Noon then becomes a blacklist allegory in a way that it probably wouldn't have been. Then I want to just say a few words about Bridge on the River Kwai, 1957, written by at least two blacklisted writers, Michael Wilson and Carl Foreman. But the Oscar for the writing for Best Screenplay went to Pierre Boulle. Who yes. was Pierre Boulle? Pierre Boulle was a Frenchman who wrote the book, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Pierre Boulle, I think, wrote none of Bridge on the River Kwai, the, the film. The two blacklisted writers did write it, but you couldn't put their names on things. And then David Lean, the autocratic director, I think got mad at both of the, the screenwriters along the way, partly because he's autocratic and they had their own opinions. And, the, and I think it's safe to say that writers who were, who were prepared to either go to jail or leave the country because of the blacklist are not the kind of writers who are going to quietly submit to a director telling them everything. You can read about the blacklist and the Oscars in the new book, Oscar Wars by Michael Shulman. And of course, there's the award-winning history of the blacklist, naming names by Victor Navasky. And then there's a very good movie, The Front, starring Zero Mostel and Woody Allen. Any other closing thoughts about this year's Oscars? Well, I think what's most interesting about this year's Oscars is that it's a, going to come down to a choice between two radically different kinds of films, I think. Everything, everywhere, all at once is probably going to win because its fans are the biggest fans. Young people like it. Older members of the Academy don't like it. In contrast, the one that maybe they think is the impressive one, which is Tar, which is the complicated, smart one. Nobody went to see it very much. And I think many Oscar people don't like that either. You know, I think probably if you ask the Academy, really the one, you know, at, at some level, I think they secretly want to give it to Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> because Top Gun Maverick got people back in the theaters, made a huge amount of money. And in this town, keeping the studios in business exactly. is the very most important thing. No, it is. It got people, you know, it, it, it did that. And it took a movie that I think everybody thought was kind of a fun joke and made a better version of it. And it had, you know, it had all the people working on making the effects. I mean, it's an expensive movie. 
the whole industry gets rich, you know, with, with a movie like that. And if I, and probably if I were voting, you know, see, my theory is always that maybe given you can't really choose the best film, you should choose the movie that was the movie that defined the year. And I think that if I had to choose a movie that defined that year, it was Top Gun Maverick in, in the way that like you define them a historical moment, which is you're coming back out of the pandemic People are feeling a little bit better about stuff. You know, Top Gun Maverick wouldn't have been as popular if Trump was president. They wouldn't have been able to enjoy it in the same way if they thought this was America first of the of the mega kind. If they really voted for what they like, that's what they'd vote for. John Powers, critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Thank you, John. I'll talk to you later. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.